வணக்கம் கிருஷ்ணன் வணக்கம் அண்ட் நமஸ்காரம் ஆனந்த் நமஸ்காரம் ஐம் குட் ஹவ் ஆர் யூ டூயிங் வெரி வெல் थैंक यू सो टुडे माय गेस्ट इज रामायण कृष्णन ही इज द डब्ल्यू डब्ल्यू कूपर एंड रूथ एफ कूपर प्रोफेसर ऑफ मैनेजमेंट साइंस एंड इंफॉर्मेशन सिस्टम्स एट द कार्नेगी मेलन यूनिवर्सिटी ही इज द फाउंडिंग डीन ऑफ द हाइंस कॉलेज ऑफ इंफॉर्मेशन सिस्टम्स एंड पब्लिक पॉलिसी एंड हैज हेल्ड दैट पोजीशन सिंस 2009 A distinctive feature of his work has been deep partnerships with firms and government agencies and the pursuit of work that has made foundational contributions to science while making a real-world impact. He has been a serial academic entrepreneur and established multiple externally funded university-wide research centers at CMU. Krishnan was elected a AAAS fellow, an Informs fellow, and a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. In 2019, he served as the 25th president of Informs, and in 2022, he was appointed to the National AI Advisory Committee, which is charged with advising the president and the White House National AI Initiatives Office. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Alumnus Award of the IIT Madras and the University of Texas at Austin. Krishna, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Rambo Nandri, thank you very much. It's thank you very much uh, for this opportunity to have a conversation with you. Excellent. Really looking forward. And let's start with your name. What is your actual name? Well, I go by Krishnan and the reason for that is Ramaya is actually my father's name and Krishnan is my given name. So everybody should call me Krishnan. Okay. But are there more names? Yeah, I mean actually my official the, the name that I don't quite use but is my quote unquote official name is Ganapati Krishna Sharma but I go by Krishna. Okay, yeah. Much simpler, right? So, uh I know that you studied at IIT Madras, uh but are you Tamilian? Yes, I am Tamilian and I did grow up uh in Madras. I was born in uh, in Gujarat in the northwest of India and I did study at IIT Madras. Um it was a wonderful institution where I did my undergraduate studies in mechanical engineering. Mhm. Uh Indians are known to speak multiple languages. Uh which ones do you speak? I speak multiple languages. I speak multiple Indian languages. I speak Tamil, I speak Hindi, and I speak Malayalam with some mistakes. My wife is from Kerala and um they speak Malayalam there. So I speak some Malayalam as well. Mm-hmm. So I I th- those three languages I speak reasonably. I can understand some other South Indian languages like Kannada and, and Telugu mm-hmm. but the three languages I would say are Tamil Hindi and Malayalam right can you read Malayalam I can't read Malayalam I can read Tamil and Hindi and I, Sanskrit was something that um that I read as a religious you know it's a mm-hmm. language for religious texts so I can I can read Sanskrit but um legitimately i should only limit my knowledge to uh tamil hindi and malayalam uh, yeah so you come from a traditional south indian family right indeed indeed mhm and what did your parents do my my father was a 
a civil service officer. Um, he was he was actually trained as an engineer, and then um, in um, you know he came of age right around the time India became independent in 1947, um, and in 1953, uh, 54, he um, joined the uh, Indian civil services as a police officer in the Indian Police Service (IPS) in the Gujarat cadre. That's why I was born in Gujarat, I guess, because we were we, we were in Gujarat and um, my parents um, lived in Gujarat till for about a decade um, and uh, moved to Madras, what is now called Chennai, uh, early 60s. And um, there are four of us, an elder brother, two sisters, and I'm the youngest. And my father was, as I mentioned, he was an engineer who went on to do the civil service exam. My mother was a homemaker, mm -hmm. took amazing care of us and taught us great values. So I learned a lot from both my parents. Yeah, excellent. Uh, are they all in the US or only you? I have two siblings in the United States and an elder brother who, uh, who unfortunately has passed away. Ah, as well. ah, okay, okay, right. Um, so you were born um, in the early 60s. Um, how was life at that time in Chennai and throughout the 70s? I think it was a it was a, a really um, a wonderful um, time growing up. Um, had a lot of friends. You played in the streets. It was um, you know not quite as um, organized as you know the kinds of sports we have here in the United States. I mean, you played cricket. You played um, you know what's called gully danda, which is a, a game that you play with the. With, with sticks um, and um, so a lot of fun growing up playing in the street but then when I went to um, middle school and high school I began playing um, table tennis and also um, some, um, some soccer and hockey soccer which I yeah but I really became more oriented towards playing um, field hockey when I was in college more so than than when I was in school in school I primarily played table tennis Okay, that's very impressive. Uh, were you there in India when the, when uh, they got the gold medal in the Olympic Games in 1980? Yes, I, I was in India, um, and um, I'm I'm quite a sports fan, so I enjoy sports. I watched cricket a lot growing up. Uh, Madras is the you know home to the famous Chepauk Stadium. Mm -hmm. um, where you have a number of great matches that have been played and I used to watch them live with my brother and um, I enjoyed that tremendously and um, also a lot of uh, field hockey uh, matches were played in, in, in Chennai. I mean it was called Madras when I was growing up, it uh -huh. was now, now called Chennai. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so 1980 uh, India won the Olympic gold medal in the Moscow Olympics. Yeah. And so I certainly was in India then. Yeah. Uh, in '83, were you there uh, too for the? No, I had World just Cup? had just moved to uh, the United States. Ah. I was already in Texas. Yeah. So so when India won the World Cup in '83, you're already in the U.S. That I was, was US. that was quite huge, right? It was. Yeah. That's right. Now that, now that you're talking about the World Cup is cricket. Yes, you know? cricket, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In 1980, it was the field hockey. hockey field hockey. Man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
because yeah, the so cricket is not uh, both, in, of, both favorite sports of mine yeah yeah so because <laughs> mm -hmm. cricket is not in the uh is not part of the olympic games right so i don't believe it's in the olympic games unless they've introduced yeah. it recently i mm -hmm. think field hockey is mm -hmm. uh, but not but not cricket yeah yeah right um so what about music I know that uh, film songs are really popular in India, but I saw somewhere that you enjoyed listening to Hotel California on the radio uh, at IIT. <laughs> and later when you went to the US, you discovered Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. That's quite unusual. Well, I mean, actually, um, uh, growing up in, um, when I was growing up, I mean, we listened to a, a wide range of music. Um, my parents were both avid listeners of classical Indian music. So this is Carnatic music and Hindustani music. So that was there. Um, though at that time, I wasn't that uh, engrossed or excited about Indian classical music, though I've gotten to like it a great deal now. Um, I listened to what is effectively pop music, which is uh, the popular film music, both Hindi and uh, Tamil were the two um, popular genres of film music that I listened to growing up. And um, we also had a lot of, um, um, you know, the Bee Gees were very popular, the Beatles were very popular. There was lots of uh, popular music, Western music. And when I went to uh, IIT, there, there was a great deal of exposure to, to, uh, to rock music. Um, the Stones, the um, and certainly Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, um, and of course the Eagles. Uh, Hotel California was a huge hit in the time when I was a undergraduate at uh, IIT. So we used to play it on a, you know, there was a, we used to have those days. We have these long play records. Nobody knows what they are anymore, but <laughs> we used to play these records over and over and over again. So I didn't have to wait till I went to the U.S. Ah. to get exposed to Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin. Wow. I, I was already exposed to it ah. um, in, uh, at IIT. But and I actually got to watch um, 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 Uriah Heep, which is another, uh, yes, another I know. band, uh, which I had listened to at IIT. I watched them live when I went to Austin. So. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I heard that you also uh, enjoyed uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Correct. Right. I mean, Austin had an amazing uh, club scene, and uh, it had very good blues and rock, and the blues rock um, uh, was very popular in Austin. Um, and Stevie Ray Vaughan was a young upcoming singer then, I, and I was very fortunate to catch him live in uh, on Sixth Street in Austin. I remember in the in the eighties. This was. Early 80s when I was when I just uh, moved to Texas. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I I'm really impressed by your you know musical taste and it's very broad. I was actually very exposed to Carnatic music when I was growing up because of my parents, especially my dad, who's uh, really really into that. But I, I I was never able to really appreciate it, though I I understand and respect the complexity, especially the rhythms, the ragas and everything. But for me, and even for my brother, uh, we had some difficulty in, in to digest. So we went more towards rock and, and things like that. But uh, even my, my cousin, Shriram, he plays the Murdangam and is very knowledgeable about uh, uh, Carnatic music. And, but yeah. So uh, regarding literature, uh, do you have any particular style of books that you, you like or authors? 
I mean, again, I have a, a fairly wide range. Um, I mean, my bandwidth is kind of large from, uh, you know, popular thriller type uh, novels to, um, you know, more classic literature, which I, you know, I mean, English literature, certainly there was certainly the classic English literature, which you studied um, in as part of, you know, from Thomas Hardy and books far from the madding crowd, um, things of that P.G. Woodhouse. Uh... Well, P.G. Woodhouse is more popular, but this is, uh, you, know, th you know, this is more classic English literature, which you studied in school. Um, you know, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens yes. um, books uh, by famous authors like that. Mm -hmm. Two more popular um, uh, writing by English authors, um, P.G. Woodhouse, um, and also more serious philosophical, like Aldous Huxley, Huxley yes. um, you know, and then you Brave know, New World, right? And then, then trashy thrillers, James Hadley Chase, you know, those kinds of, you uh -huh. <laughs> saw so the whole gamut. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there's a very popular movie, uh, a Tamil movie out right now called Pony and Selvan. And this was a very famous uh, book, actually, by, an in, by a Tamil writer called Kalki Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's a wonderful story of um, uh, the great uh, Chola king, um, Raja Raja Chola. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a five volume book in Tamil. And that was a, um, a wonderful book. And now you, people who can't read the book can certainly watch the movie. It's just released and it's a huge hit. Ah. Um, and um, so very wide range. Of, uh, of reading. Absolutely, absolutely. More, more English than Tamil, but certainly mm -hmm. got to read both, both uh, literatures. Yeah, that's great. Um, there is a tremendous competition among the students to be admitted at, M at IIT. Uh, how did you prepare for the exams and did you receive any pressure from your family? There was not so much pressure as in, I think very early on, um, I think it perhaps had to do with my father being a major role model, um, that the idea was that you went through these competitive exams to get um, access to um, high quality education. In my father's time, it was about getting access to high quality uh, jobs through passing the civil service exam, which was a very competitive uh, examination. Um, and in, at my time, um, the idea of my wanting to apply for an IIT was probably something that even by the time probably I was 10 uh, or 11 years old, uh, I recall thinking, you know, this is what I wanted to do. So you, I wrote the exam relatively, I mean, as, as a young, um, I, I, was complete, I completed high school by the time I was a little after 15. So I took the exam just a little after when I was 15 years old. Um, and um, my elder brother, uh, who who had prepared for that exam, uh, but he had all the materials for that exam at home. So I used that uh, to prepare for that exam. And I was fortunate to do well in that exam and um, and get admitted to the IIT. It, but, was, it, was, it was indeed a very competitive exam. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it was not one of those things I was pressured into doing or anything like that. It was one of those things that felt very natural for me. My dad had done the civil service exam and I thought this was something that I would do. Yeah. So you joined IIT when you were 16 years old? Yes. 
Wow. Yeah. Is it that quite common or you were... Uh, I was a little on the younger side, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, what made you choose the mechanical engineering degree? It was actually totally random. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was like a deep data-driven decision. It was more like I showed up, um, you know, the way it worked in those days was that based on your rank, and I had a high rank, um, you, you showed up at the local IIT and um, they would tell you what, what branches of engineering were available and, and in which IITs. There were five IITs when I, when I uh, applied. Um, so there was one in, in IIT Madras, there was IIT Kanpur, in IIT Kharagpur, IIT Delhi, IIT Bombay, those were the five. And because I had a high rank and I was having that interview on day one, everything was available. And I had gone in thinking I would either choose mechanical engineering or choose electronics engineering. And it was like a random sort of choice that I made. And mechanical engineering was very highly ranked at IIT Madras. I said, if I was going to choose mechanical, I'd choose IIT Madras. If I was going to choose electronics, I would go to IIT Kanpur. Mm. Um, as it turned out, I, you know, my wife went to IIT Kanpur the same year, but I didn't get to go to IIT Kanpur. I would have met her sooner. Uh, but... Uh, I went to IIT Madras and I chose mechanical engineering. So there was no, uh, there was no deep algorithmic thinking <laughs> or model-based thinking there. Yeah, I just I, was a random choice. That's very interesting. I mean, you are now making very complex decisions, but then <laughs> when everything started, you let's go random. <laughs> that's nice. No, I sort of, uh, you know, the, my reason for even choosing engineering in some sense was that my father had was a chemical engineer, right? Right. And um, what appealed to me about engineering was more the engineering approach to problem solving, mm. more so than the details of the engineering itself. It wasn't like I went in thinking I want to design something, therefore I wanted to be an engineer. It was more what was appealing to me was um, there was an approach to the, what they call the engineering mindset. Mm -hmm. I certainly uh, thought that that logical, rational, um, mathematical approach uh, to problem solving is something that engineering would give you. Mm -hmm. And that's that was appealing to me. Mm -hmm. And so I went in there and they said, oh, do you want this or that or this? I said, OK, <laughs> mechanical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, some group of students develop a sort of a brotherhood while spending time together at IIT. Did that also happen to you? Without a doubt, um, you know, it's it's entirely a residential college. I don't know if you're aware. Yes, of that. yes. Um, and the, at the time when I went to IIT, each IIT had roughly 200 students. So that's all we, there were. There were 200. Every cohort was 200 students. And um, and we lived in what were called hostels, which are dorms. And um, depending on your branch of engineering, you often were in the same hostel. Um, so you really built deep connections with classmates. Um, and it's a small enough cohort that you pretty much knew everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody in, in your first year, everybody had the same uh, courses. So you, irrespective of your, of your branch, you were uh, together. So you got to know one another. And I played sports, so you got to meet a lot of others. So um, I think it was a very formative experience for me in the sense that these were amazingly uh, smart uh, 
students, mostly male, there were very few females at that time. Now, I think it's changed tremendously. I think it's great to see now that, you know, almost half the entering class now wow. is female. But when I, when I went to IIT, uh, women, unfortunately, were in the minority. Uh, but um, you built very, very deep connections with um, with your classmates, mm -hmm. and and that those relationships and connections have stayed strong, um, you know, through all these years. Uh, so, in fact, even this afternoon, we had a, a a group from IIT Madras. The alumni director was I was hosting. I hosted them for lunch, and we have a number of faculty who are IIT Madras alumni. Uh, who are at Carnegie Mellon. And mm -hmm. so it was great to see somebody, some recent graduates who have just graduated, completed their PhDs at Stanford or wherever, and have come to CMU. And um, old fogies like me that graduated <laughs> uh, 35 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it should so. have been great, like meeting these people, connecting, reconnecting with them. That's, that's very yeah. nice. Yeah. And yeah. when did OR enter your life? Actually at IIT, uh, as it turned out. So we had a required course on operations research um, that was uh, my first introduction to OR was actually an intro to OR course. It was a required course in my engineering uh, major. Maybe in my, we had a, I was in a five-year program those days. Um, maybe it was in my third year, if I remember correctly. Um, and something about it really appealed to me uh, about using math for problem solving. Um, and those days, you know, you did the um, the matrix inversion and the basics of yes. the simplex algorithm. You did it by hand, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, we didn't have tools in those days, but in, and you needed to go to the computing center to run, you know, in a bat job, you could run the, uh, you know, an LP if you wanted to. Um, but what is appealing to me was learning problem formulation, you know, more so than the algorithmic parts, learning problem formulation, which I think has stuck with me as being a, a part of that OR engineering mindset uh, was this approach to problem solving requires you to learn how to scope a problem, formulate a problem, determine the boundaries of the problem and um, identify what the objective function should be, what are we optimizing, what are the constraints, which parts are deterministic, which are stochastic, uh, what do you have to predict, which things are prescriptive, which things are predictive. So I think all of those things were early introduction. Nobody used all these words, but early introductions to these were made in that, in that uh, sequence of classes. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that I actually wanted to do industrial engineering and operations research as a master's after my mechanical engineering degree, rather than do more mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. So clearly it was a influential course uh, because it, it changed the trajectory of my, my studies because I then went on to actually get uh, a master's degree in industrial engineering and operations research. Mm -hmm. uh, what motivated you to move to the US for higher studies? Actually, to be honest, I think, you know, at the time when I was at IIT, um, a very large number of students out of a class of 200 students probably 160 of us went to the U.S. at that time. Wow. Uh, yeah, so a very large number went to the U.S. to study. And um, now that's changed a lot again now in India because I think the opportunities in India have changed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but at that time, a good number of us went abroad to do graduate school. And I went to do a master's. I mean, I hadn't committed to doing a PhD, mm. I went to do a master's. Oh. And um, I went and did a master's in industrial engineering and operations research. Um, I had admissions to um, master's programs in India as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. uh, but thought that this would be an opportunity to, to learn um, and study in the US. And this is something that many of the students who were a year ahead of me and two years ahead of me, you know, there was a, very much a culture in IIT of going abroad. So, Right. Uh, in Austin, uh, you were fortunate enough to meet a small constellation of stars in the fields of OR and management science. Could you name some of these stars and how they influenced you at the time? Yeah, Anand, this was, it was truly serendipitous because when I went to Austin from IIT, I had no idea that I would meet um, Leon Lasden and Darwin Klingman and Bill Cooper and Fred Glover and then have the opportunity to work with Art Jeffrey on, uh, all of whom are giants in the field. Um, so when I went to do my master's, at uh, in the College of Engineering, Industrial Engineering and Operations Research, uh, Leon had an appointment in Industrial Engineering and Operations Research, and he um, was um, a leading math programmer, uh, a math programming scholar, uh, who had done uh, a lot of work on generalized reduced gradient methods, GRG, mm -hmm. it was one of the things that he, he had, a, he had a, a collection of algorithms called GRG2, and at, you know later on this GRG2 would become the basis of the Excel uh, optimizer. GRG2 became you know the, oh. the, the solver in Excel was actually the algorithm that he developed. So, so he wrote I, part of the code then. He wrote he actually it was ported and made into the solver engine of Excel. Oh. So it was it, it was truly impactful what he did because Absolutely. so many people began using um, you know his solver. But when I was doing my master's, he had a project on sequential quadratic programming. And my master's thesis was on um, sequential quadratic programming. So it's very much um, methodological work, right? That's what I did. Mm -hmm. And then I um, switched from the industrial engineering and operations research group to the management science and information systems group. One, because I wanted a broader um, set of um, uh, methods and uh, applications to work with. And Professor Darwin Klingman, who was in the management science group, um, ran a big center called the Center for Business Decision Analysis. Um, and I became a research assistant of his. Um, and he had a very large project and he, along with Professor Fred Glover, this is the Glover-Klingman um, um, pair had done a lot of work on network algorithms and network models. And um, so there was the really interesting set of production distribution problems that um, we were using network optimization for working with real world partners. So the work with Leon was methodological, but I knew that Leon was working with, you know, with Excel to get the solver in Excel. And then I worked with Darwin uh, and Fred Glover and the project was with uh, Citco Petroleum, um, 
So I was very fortunate even during my PhD while I was you know, learning modeling and methods in operations research, statistics, and of my own interest, I was also developing the equivalent of a PhD minor in computer science. Um, nobody told me to do it. I just was interested. I just went and did it. Uh, and Darwin and Leon and Fred were very kind and they let me do what I wanted. <laughs> but, uh, but the project with Citco Petroleum eventually became a project that uh, Darwin uh, Klingman led a team for the Edelman Award. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to have been one of two graduate students on that uh, the, the Edelman Award winning um, project. The other graduate student turned out to be my wife, Rema Padman. Wow. And that's where we met because she was Darwin's student and it was uh, her thesis work was actually this uh, uh, production distribution uh, optimization project. So you got so, two awards. <laughs> <laughs> you could think of it that way. Uh, but it was a great learning experience to think about how to actually use analytic methods to solve a really large scale and consequential business decision problem um, using operations research methods. And it was deployed at scale using information technology. This is in the mid 80s to, to it was 87 or 88. I think it was the Edelman Award. Mm -hmm. uh, and Darwin was very kind to include us in the management science paper that described uh, this work. So it, all of this could not have been something you could have predicted. And while we were working on Darwin's project uh, earlier on in, in parallel, I had an opportunity to work with Bill Cooper and Abe Chance as a research assistant on their data envelopment analysis work, which is also again, a very consequential um, technique from operations research and management science. I was a very um, small cog in that big uh, lab that they had uh, because I was basically doing um, uh, runs, if you will. I was, I, was, I was testing their DEA method on a bunch of different data sets. I wasn't developing new methodology like I had done with, uh, with Leon or done the applications like I'd done with Darwin, but it was a great opportunity to work with Bill. Um, you know, they were all individually giants in, in their own right. And I was very fortunate to interact with them uh, while I was at mm -hmm. Texas and all of them, uh, Leon Lasden, Bill Cooper, Darwin Klingman, and then Fred Glover came to Texas a lot. I got to interact with and also work on um, these projects that uh, really helped me understand how to work on problem-driven research. Mm. Uh, I think that that was certainly a, a big part of what I learned. Mm. And then at that same time, this was in the mid eighties to late, uh, eighties, Arthur Jeffreyon was at UCLA began work on what he called structured modeling. Uh -huh. Um, and he was very kind to invite graduate students like myself to come to UCLA uh, to interact with him. And then I built a relationship with him and he has been a mentor as well over many years. So even though I was at Texas and I got to, uh, I got to meet and engage and interact with Art, 
So you, you got to meet Art, Fred, Darwin, Leon, and Bill. I couldn't ask for more. That's really, really impressive. And you were uh, very lucky, I must say. I, I, without a doubt. <laughs> That's what I said. It's serendipitous and, and fortunate. Yeah. Uh, so your PhD dissertation was about knowledge-based aids for model formulation. Can you elaborate Correct. more on this, please? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing, right? So the nice thing about all these wonderful people I worked with is they gave me the opportunity to work with them on projects that they led, but they gave me the space to do my own thing. And so I, instead of choosing to do a project, I could have, I, I could have done a project that they had They, I was interested in creating something of my own. So, and that's where my, I had over these last, you know, those years in the PhD program, I had built um, knowledge in computer science, in AI. Um, I had studied statistics as a, so my minors were in statistics and computer science and my major was in operations research and management science. And I was, And it was this time that expert systems were a, a popular uh, in the press. And I was curious about how to bring together rule-based systems and rule-based programming systems with OR-based modeling. Mm. And so knowledge-based aids for model formulation was about how could you use rule-based systems and uh, what are called logic programs um, to actually help automatically mod formulate models of problem uh, statements. So what this work entailed was actually, in effect, creating a very early version where you could provide in a formal language the problem that you wanted to formulate. And you would state it using uh, a type of logic-based language. And that's where the connection with structured modeling came about. And you would write it down and the uh, logic program would process these statements and then develop a first cut mathematical model of that, of that problem statement um, for a human uh, modeler to look at and then improve and evaluate. So in that sense, it was a model management system to help somebody who's a human analyst mm -hmm. um, work with models. That was the, that was sort of the ambitious uh, vision for that, uh, for that thesis. And it, I must say that it was, it was a, a very odd uh, <laughs> thing to do for somebody at that time to, you know, create something of their own uh -huh. because I could have done a sequential quadratic programming thesis, or I could have done a, network algorithms thesis, or I could have done an applied OR thesis. I just went out and did this. It turned out to be actually quite challenging to do because I was doing it. I was doing something that no faculty member was doing, but it actually helped me in the future because I was building many of the capabilities that were needed for what later became uh, this interaction between OR and machine learning, right. which I didn't know about again, I was, <laughs> but it was useful to have done all of that uh, as part of the piece. So you were a visionary. I um, don't know about that, I was lucky. <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> uh, well, 
Uh, how did you get the position at CMU? I read that you did not understand why you were hired, right? Well, you know, to be honest, um, I, I did have a, a number of offers. That, there was also the time in, in the late 80s when the intersection between expert systems and optimization was, was an area that was quite uh, popular. Um, I, but when at Carnegie Mellon, I was interviewing at the public policy school and I wasn't doing anything related to public policy at that time. Um, I was presenting work on, you know, how logic programming, expert systems and mathematical programming could combine. And it had nothing to do with either business or public policy. And that's why I was, I was, uh, I wondered why they would want to hire me because, um, but clearly the Dean who hired me, Al Bloomstein, who was himself an informs president, by the way, probably saw something in me that um, I wasn't seeing. And, um, and Bill Cooper, certainly who was the founder of the school, encouraged me to go to Carnegie Mellon because of the amazing environment that Carnegie Mellon provided. So I chose Carnegie Mellon over many other alternatives that I had. And it certainly was a wonderful and correct decision because CMU turned out to be a very good choice. Right. So the person who, who hired you was definitely a visionary then. But the interesting thing was Bill Cooper um, had founded the school I went to. Uh -huh. Al Bloomstein had been hired by Bill Cooper. And Al Bloomstein hired me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice chain. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So uh, what were your first activities at CMU? I think my really, um, I had this very much of a, a, a multidisciplinary program of research. Um, so I reached out to colleagues primarily in engineering and computer science because that was where the most logical connections existed for me. Um, so I, I would go to colleagues in uh, computer science, um, uh, Professor Newell, uh, you know, famous Newell Simon, uh, Professor Alan Newell uh, led the SOAR project. Um, the Engineering Design Research Center at CMU had, was doing work on something very similar to what I had been doing, but I had been doing it on production distribution problems they were trying to do it on engineering design problems. So there, was, there were connections there. So being able to go to these other parts of CMU to see where the connections uh, existed helped me um, establish those connections for one part of my research program. And the other was that my basic training in operations research and, and uh, statistics and management science, connecting it to uh, societal problems that happened from within uh, the Heinz School itself. There's a professor, Professor George Duncan, who um, was a noted scholar on privacy and confidentiality. And the Census Bureau had a very interesting set of problems related to what's, what is called the data disclosure problem. And the data disclosure problem that they faced at that time was how do you maximally make data that was 
public that had been collected from the public right mm-hmm. and under uh, certain guarantees of confidentiality so for instance you know the census surveys people and collects data about say if you and i were citizens in the us we provide data about our ethnicity our income where we live things of that nature so imagine you have all these census data they would like to release data for the purposes of helping public policy analysis but at the same time they want to protect the confidentiality in such a way that people cannot discover anand's salary for instance mm-hmm. or anand's income mm-hmm. so the we formulated that as a, a, an optimization problem a decision theoretic optimization problem saying maximize data sub, dis, maximize the data that you can disclose subject to confidentiality constraints and um that that problem was a very rich problem that lent itself to um both mathematical programming models but it had a particular structure so we could come up with really specialized methods to address them and we published a series of papers in management science as well as got funding from NSF to uh, pursue this work so you had both kinds of activities going on in my first few years at CMU i got an opportunity to use the methods i had been trained with but on new problems i had not studied privacy and confidentiality mm-hmm. problems in at texas but now i got to study them here the other was taking stuff that i was doing but connecting it to engineering and other contexts that i had not previously connected it to while i was at texas so I, but the methods that they were using were similar or i learned a lot from so in that sense it was a very stimulating environment at cmu uh, where i could engage with cs and engineering uh, school colleagues on the ai and modeling work and then the privacy and confidentiality uh, problems gave me an opportunity to apply my or Uh, and statistics uh, skills. I hope this helps you understand. Of course, it's very, very this. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Krishna, with the internet becoming more and more popular during the late 90s and early 2000s, many research opportunities emerged, and you took uh, advantage of that to make very impactful research work, right? So, so Anand, actually, the 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 internet, in particular, the World Wide Web, is what I think you're thinking about. um that happened the the big web browser um the browser that made the biggest impact called the mosaic browser came out in in 1993 mm. that's not even the late 90s the earliest yeah. so prior to netscape was, uh yeah, yeah and then then came netscape then came explorer but there was this rapid development of technology from say middle 90s onwards mm. and yes you're right that that fundamentally opened up a whole range of problems that were amenable to uh the skill set that i had um so you're right that um one of the things that this naturally led to was to think about um how might one study for instance this problem of how people make choices uh, about which uh, e-commerce uh, retailer to choose 
um, from among a set of e-commerce retailers. So think of this like a choice problem where you have a lot of features uh, associated with a retailer. Um, so it could be if you want to buy something, uh, you, you have a set of retailers that can sell you that good. Which retailer should you choose? Um, and you could say, OK, it's price. It's uh, how reliable they are, how much they charge for delivery. Will they accept returns? Um, you know, all, all these kinds of features, right? So, and we also knew how people actually made those choices. So, um, could you then use um, statistical techniques to try and understand how choices were made? That's on the consumer behavior side of mm -hmm. how choices were made. Mm -hmm. And for this, you needed to collect vast amounts of data about how people were making these kinds of choices. So we compiled these really among the earliest groups to compile lots of data about uh, how people were making choices about consumer behavior. The second thing that was interesting was if you wanted to create a shopping bot to help consumers, um, how would you create a shopping bot that took this kind of behavior into account uh, to provide them decision support um, so that was the, the, the shop bot paper, which received a lot of, uh, had a lot of yeah. impact. And actually, uh, some uh, e-commerce vendors even took some of the ideas from that and incorporated it in their, um, in their own technology. So I think it was a blend of being able to take the OR type tools, but combining it with a lot of data and um, demonstrating how you could build decision support tools um, that actually people could use to make the kinds of choices that they were making in an online setting. So that, that was the beginning that led to a whole bunch of other uh, uh, studies of, these, of this sort. Mm -hmm. um, but that certainly was, so the internet was very kind to me. The web <laughs> was very kind to me because it gave me a test bed to study a number of very interesting problems. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you use the statistical tools, uh, but uh, in general, what type of OR methods you used in this, uh, in the research lines that you just talked about? So, uh, you know, I, I think of these as uh, all OR tools, meaning mm. that to me, uh, when I think of statistical tools, decision theoretic models, um, it's not the traditional set up as oh it was an integer program and we solved it as it it, it was it's a it was a combination of um uh, you know choice models hierarchical hierarchical bayesian choice models estimation of those models and then embedding those in um in um an optimization based framework to allow for individuals to make choices so it wasn't um methods oriented it was problem oriented uh, right. in other words it was problem driven research uh -huh. for which you could use methods so we were not pioneering new methods we were actually breaking new ground in terms of addressing new problems uh -huh. i think we were not necessarily breaking new ground in new uh, algorithms or things of that nature with this work mm -hmm. right uh, your current research interests are related to data-driven analysis and decision-making, social media and analytics, data security and, and privacy. 
uh, insensitive issues in distributed information systems and so on. Can you talk about some of your ongoing work and your research perspectives on these topics? So, I mean, maybe the, the thing, to, you know, those are a collection of topics. I mean, data security and privacy has been an, an interest right from that Census Bureau work. Mm -hmm. um, but the mo most concrete thing I'm working on today is really on what I'm calling talent supply chains. Uh, just like your physical supply chains, this is about workforce. You know, at least in the U.S., this is a big issue, which is how do you find people with the right skills uh, to be able to uh, take on the jobs uh, that are available? So you're trying to, if you think about jobs as uh, a collection of skills um, and people having a set of skills, how do we match people to jobs? Okay. And if people don't have the skills, how do you then take them from, so think of this as a, a problem, almost like a graph path problem uh -huh. where they, are, they have a set of skills. They want a job that is demanding a different set of skills. So what training do they need to pick up along the way that will allow them to acquire these skills so that their current skills plus the skills that they acquire will be sufficient to allow them to match into the skills being demanded by the job. And while doing so, you also want to account for that the training took certain amount of time, it cost certain amount of money, and by doing this training, they incurred some costs. And when they get this job, what is the wage premium that they get that might actually allow them to make an economic case for why they should follow this path versus some other path, right? So this problem is a problem that we are trying to attack by first trying to understand purely in a data-driven way what skills are declining in demand and which skills are increasing in demand by looking at longitudinal data about jobs and jobs and the skills associated with jobs and which are increasing, which are decre decreasing. And then looking at the individual level decision support that you can provide to individuals by telling them based on the skills that you have, what do you need to do to get from here to be ready for a job? And then who do you target for this kind of upskilling are people who are in those job markets or labor markets where the skills are declining or the job job demand for the jobs that they have are declining so that they have an incentive to want to acquire new skills to transition to new labor markets where there is more demand right mm -hmm. so what yeah. i'm this this problem um has data-driven aspects it has statistical aspects it has some optimization problems in it um but i'm giving you the high level pitch on uh, a really interesting research program yes, fascinating. On, on, on workforce and mm -hmm. workforce and what we're calling workforce supply chains or talent supply yeah. chains. That's something that I'm currently quite interested in. Yeah, looking forward to reading the, the papers that yeah. will come out of Thank that you. research. Yeah. So tell me more about the iLab and other similar initiatives that you're responsible for at CMU. So switching gears a little bit, I think you know, I've been talking about projects that I individually was involved with or have led. When I, um, 
even before I became dean, one of my objectives was to create a, a structure, um, and that's where the lab or the center concept came up, where we could create an environment where you could have shared resources, data sets, test beds, things of that nature, that would allow for many individuals to work on um, a problem, either individually or together. So early on, um, we had some very interesting partnership with actually a former, a couple of former students of mine, where we got data about, um, you know, large amounts of data on what are called call detail records. These are um, networks of who calls whom, anonymized networks of who calls whom, and um, these are massive graphs. And one of the one of the interesting business contexts that arise in that in this setting is something called uh, a ringback tone. Um, so when you call, let's say I call Anand, and I hear a particular song, or instead of the ring ring, I actually hear a song when I call you. So I get exposed to that song uh, every time I call you. And the question is, do I now go ahead and purchase that song? Um, and if you look at this graph, you can look at over time, the diffusion of this ringback tone over the nodes over time. And the question that is interesting is to what extent is the adoption of that of this caller ringback tone determined by social influence because you are somebody I talk to a lot and you exert an influence on me because you adopt something, therefore I'm adopting it. Is mm -hmm. it that? Or is it because of something called homophily, which means that you and I have shared taste. It has nothing to do with influence, but because you and I have shared taste, I adopt something um, and it turns out that it's correlated with what you have adopted. But the point is that given a graph where you see this kind of diffusion happening, two forces that might be driving that diffusion, one could be social influence, the other could be homophily. And can you estimate a model that will tell you what is driving adoption? Is it social influence or is it homophily? Because if it's social influence, you want to advertise the content for content to diffuse quickly. You want to identify who the big influencers are and get them to adopt because then it'll quickly diffuse through the graph. If it is homophily, you want a different advertising strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So the first step to do is to figure out is it homophily or is it influence or combination of the two? And then you ask the question, based on whether it's homophily or influence, what should be the optimal approach to get content to diffuse throughout a network? This is the work we did with large social networks um, from um, a partner company. And this kind of data on the network we made available, not just to our group, but anybody who wanted access to that type of large network. And that was something that was not done usually, but lots of faculty benefited from, not everybody wanted to study the same problem. Some people in computer science wanted to study graph structure. 
they wanted to look at the degrees of these nodes uh, and characterize them and look at the structure of these graphs and uh, compare them to the mathematical graphs and see how similar or different. Because this was, a, this was these were examples of real graphs that uh, existed in practice. So, but the point I'm making is by making this kind of a data set available that everybody could use in an in an open kind of way, it led to innovation, and that gave me the idea that hey, if this could work well with something like the social network data, could it also work more broadly with smart city, with smart transportation? So we did, this iLab became like a generator of lab ideas. And so that led then to the creation of the Metro 21 Research Center, which was a smart city center where we worked with Pittsburgh and the region to create smart transportation and smart city. And that led to all sorts of great outcomes with the Department of Transportation. We uh, did something with Singapore on li the Living Analytics Research Center where Singapore was a test bed. Um, and then we, um, PricewaterhouseCoopers came and established a digital transformation and innovation center. And now I lead a center called Block Center for Technology and Society that, um, is a center focused on like that workforce problem I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. uh, how is AI affecting the future of work? How do you use, how do you do um, AI in a responsible fashion? Those are things that we're addressing in the block center. But in all of these centers and labs, the idea has been that you have these trusted relationships with groups of faculty and shared resources and people benefited um, by virtue of having access to this type of shared resource. Right. So you mentioned Singapore, and it seems that in 2008, when you were there, you got a phone call that somewhat changed your life. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, like I told you, we, were ha we have this uh, research center in Singapore. And um, when I was coming back to Pittsburgh, the former provost, Mark Camlet, called me to say he wanted me to be interim dean because there had been a change in the leadership at the school and that he wanted me to uh, serve as interim dean. And I, this was not one of the things that I had been contemplating, but I decided, okay, I'll, you know, CMU and the Heinz School has given so much to me that I should give something back. And so I took up the interim deanship and then they had a national search and in 2009, I was appointed dean. Yeah, That's why I call myself the accidental dean. <laughs> <laughs> you have made many important contributions to your college as dean, which led, for example, to a couple of highly prestigious awards from Informs. Can you mention your most relevant achievements as dean of the Heinz College? I mean, that, that's a tough question, but um, I, I think without a doubt, um, I think the bringing together a college that is home to two schools, uh, a school of information systems and a school of public policy. One of the questions when the college was established was, why should I, information technology and public policy sit together? No, nobody asked that question today, but you know, in 2009, this was a question that was being asked. And I think um, this idea of bringing together 
a research program that blended um, data science, operations research, economics, information systems, and organizational behavior faculty around um, these questions of people, public policy, and technology. I think that's been the one of the key achievements so that we can articulate what is so special about Heinz. Um, so I think, you know, that is sort of a, uh, and how that then takes shape in terms of the kinds of research that is done, the programs that we offer, the undergraduate programs, the graduate programs, the PhD programs. So for instance, we have a PhD program in machine learning and public policy. We have a PhD program in statistics and public policy. We have master's programs in uh, business intelligence and data analytics, in public policy and data analytics. And the undergraduate, we have now information systems as well as a new program in decision analytics and systems. And if I ask myself, what is common across all of these things? It has to do with really us being a center of excellence at teaching systems thinking, which is really a, an ORMS mindset issue, which is like that problem formulation point I was making earlier, combined with teaching students about information technology and analytics. Okay. And then being able to combine, take that systems thinking and that technology and analytics toolkit and apply it to solve real important societal problems. Mm -hmm. That's what we do at each of these levels, the PhD level, the master's level, the undergraduate level. And to do that well, you need faculty that have that breadth that I just mentioned of data science, OR, economics, IT, and OB, but all excited and engaged in different aspects of the study of the interactions between people and public policy, between public policy and technology, and between how people and technology interact, right? So if you ask me, what's the, what, what is the mission we've been on for the last, what, 12 years or so, that is at, at its core, what we've been up to. And of course, do, if you do it well, you get recognition and then Informs gave us, we or didn't give us, we actually competed and uh, <laughs> won the UPS Smith Prize for the best educational program in analytics. But I, I'd see that as a side effect of this, the, the first order thing of creating a mission for the college. Mm -hmm. Uh, this year, you launched uh, an innovative new undergraduate program on decision analytics and systems, as you mentioned. But uh, are we close to having uh, major degrees in analytics not instead of only minors? Yeah, I mean, this is at the undergraduate. Remember, we have analytics degrees at the master's level. This is at the undergraduate level because we wanted to take what we had learned at the master's level and say, can we teach that to, to students uh, who are undergraduates and the and, and do so in a very innovative fashion where we not only want to teach them systems thinking and technology and analytics, but have a lot of experiential learning built in right from day one where they get to interact on a lot of real world problems so that they learn application as much as they learn the methods and the theory and, the, and they are tightly connected. So in some cases you learn 
the application first, even before you learn the, the, the details of the theory. In other cases, uh, it, th this is called, there's a particular name to this type of learning. It's almost like a helix curve. Like mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, you, you learn the methods in the theory first, then you learn the application. In other cases, you learn the application first, then you learn the method. But through this uh, iterative process and what we're calling studio courses, you get the benefit of really um, learning how to apply um, this toolkit uh -huh. and uh, solve problems. Right. Uh, so are we... And there's a major coming. I yeah. mean, right now, there's just a minor. Uh -huh. And, you know, with anything like this, you want to make sure you understand and debug and do everything right. Uh -huh. So at this point, it's only going to be a minor. But eventually, I hope, that we would have learned enough uh, to figure out what it takes to do the major in this area. Ah, I'm really looking forward uh, to witnessing that. I mean, I think it's it's we're approaching a time that we might have um, major degrees in analytics. I think it's a, I think it's I would That's not say nice. it's about time. Maybe we're approaching that. Uh, but one step at a time. Yes. We're going to learn and figure it and do it right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was the most difficult situation you had to face as dean? Um, I mean, I mean, I don't know whether there was any one situation I would say as being difficult. I think um, you know when you when you start out uh, as as dean, I think having the capacity to articulate what the mission of the school is. Now, if you ask me, I'll say what I just told you. I, I wouldn't have been able to do this, you know, when I started. Um, so I think learning how to explain and articulate what the mission of the school is and to bring people along in a sh so that everybody aligns with, okay, this is what our common mission is. I think that is a, is a major challenge that um, requires you to sort of learn from others and at the same time convince others about you know the shared journey you want people to go on mm -hmm. and i say that is something that um requires a, a, a lot of lot of work mm -hmm. as dean the other i think is that you need to have um you know your objective function when you're an individual faculty member is maximizing your uh, benefit your benefit as the dean, it's just the opposite. It's about, you know, it's like maximizing welfare. You're, yeah. You have to yes. maximize the, create an environment that really lifts up the, and amplifies the work of students or faculty. And you have to be uh, unselfish mm -hmm. in, in doing that. And that, again, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a learning process. Right. And, uh, and then finally, I think it's about, really being like I see myself like the chief evangelist for the school right so you have to be able to advocate mm -hmm. for the school and in those things sometimes there are uh, areas where you, you you have to learn to do a better job communicating or being more assertive or you know there are all these parts of learning to be a leader that I think so I wouldn't say there was one thing mm. it's a collection yeah, but I see you see the difficulties as challenges. So, uh, it, you, like taking the best of the situation and learn from that, 
uh, rather than just you know thinking of the negative sides i i think i see at least this is my impression i see yourself as a very positive person that that's uh, very true yeah. <laughs> the, the glass is always half full with yeah. me <laughs> <laughs> that that's excellent uh you know sometimes a leader has to make decisions that might upset someone uh, how do you handle this type of situation and what strategy do you use not to let that affect your motivation no I, I, and I, and i think um you know this is something that uh, you know as a leader you do have uh to deal with uh, a difficult situations sometimes difficult conversations and i found it's best to be honest in those and to have a because i think people would rather you be honest and tell them like it is um and that served me well in terms of um you know and and having a fact based conversation uh has been helpful um and sometimes you you say you know i wish i had I, i had been more direct in in some cases of course as with anything else people are not perfect uh at everything you uh, at um at, you know everything they set out to do but my uh experience has been that um having difficult conversations uh you're well served by uh being honest and uh being direct and people appreciate that um so rather than try trying to evade the the difficult issue that needs to be uh discussed right okay uh so during your term as president of informs uh you led the development and implementation of the ai strategy for the society can you briefly comment about that actually you know it's a phenomenal teamwork um you know Pascal van Hentenrek and Radhika Kulkarni who's currently the president of uh, president of informs uh, were the co-leads uh, of the AI strategy committee and um they worked with an amazing group of people and it was very consultative we consulted with you know people throughout the informs community the reason why i thought it was appropriate for informs uh to create this ai strategy was that um ai has been is a transformative technology it's something that every country now has an ai policy that they have their uh, i'm sure brazil has one much as the us has uh, uh has its own um and i think the it's an area that has a strong intersection with the uh, core areas of uh, operations research um optimization uh, data driven decision making um are all areas that are there are lots of areas that are shared between ai and or and to some extent they also have some shared roots going back to the founding of ai and the founding of or and in some ways i felt that those intersections were being needed to be recognized i think both communities the ai community and the or community had a lot to learn from one another uh and at the same time uh, informs had to have an ai strategy to best determine how it can both contribute uh to the ai uh revolution uh happening in the united states and worldwide and at the same time um ensure that people understood the contributions by the or community to um 
to AI. Um, and, and I think you'll see, for instance, the new NSF AI centers that have been established. Pascal uh, actually leads one of them. Um, you're, there's a very clear um, uh, attempt by the NSF to uh, invest in areas like optimization, as well as in application domains like supply chains, like energy, areas that our community has uh, invested a great deal of time and effort in. So I think it is important first to take a step back and say, you know, why did we need an AI strategy? Right? And I think it had to do with the fact that this is a really important uh, time and AI is transformative and that the informs community both needed to recognize you know, the opportunity that this transformation represented while uh, gaining mind share and recognitions for the contributions that have been made to date. Um, and at the same time, going forward, policymakers and funding agencies had to understand you know, the role that informs could play. That in a nutshell was what is uh, the vision, but then how it got developed was very consultative. It was led by Pascal and Radhika. I certainly contributed to it, but it was very much a large group of people that uh, contributed to this. And then following that, we have run a series of um, field building efforts with the artificial intelligence and computer science community through the CCC, which is the computing consortium, uh, where we have had these AI OR convenings. Um, and we've had two to date. There's a third one upcoming, which has been an attempt to bring members of the AI and the OR communities together to brainstorm about what the new opportunities are, um, where each could benefit from the other and where the funding agencies could invest at that nexus. So it's been a very um, rewarding uh, several years. I know it was 2019 was when we began this effort. And then, of course, we went through the pandemic. And now we've, we did one Zoom-based convening and then one in-person convening at Georgia Tech. And we have one more coming up next year. So from 2019 to 2023, it would have been a four-year process of creating a strategy, executing on it. I also launched the Informed Journal on Data Science while I was president, which is part of that strategy. Galit Shumeli is the uh, editor-in-chief of that journal. Uh, so I think there's a number of things that that uh, AI strategy called for, and I'm very pleased that the community has uh, responded and uh, created a number of things that are going to benefit the community as a mm whole. -hmm. Well. Yeah, you certainly did an amazing work, and you were recently appointed to the National AI Advisory Committee. Uh, tell me more about that. Are you, are you willing to take also OR? To, to the White House at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something, it's a great honor. I'm, I'm very pleased. And again, I think informs my service at informs and the informs um, uh, community has helped me actually, without a doubt, in my being appointed to this role. Um, it's basically uh, an advisory committee to the President of the United States and the White House Office of AI Initiatives. Um, it's broadly organized around uh, trustworthy AI, uh, the kind of AI R&D the U.S. has to invest in, and um, the type of um, issues that have to be dealt with for international trade in AI. So it has a broad mandate around AI in society, AI in research, AI in economy, and um, it has a, 
you know, an amazing group of people that I'm getting an opportunity to work with that come from industry, from academia, from, um, from unions, from, uh, from foundations. And so you get all these different perspectives on, on AI. And um, while I can't say very much more about the, the details of what the committee is working on per se, um, it certainly has been a very uh, good opportunity to represent our community uh, in, in terms of uh, the opportunities that um, uh, this trans transformative, at this point in time, where you're seeing, um, you know, the U.S. think hard about, you know, what the way, how, how should AI be deployed in a trustworthy fashion, um, that there are lots of opportunities for our community. Just last week, the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the United States released the AI Bill of Rights mm -hmm. um, for all citizens. Um, and operationalizing those AI Bill of Rights, there are lots of opportunities again for our community. Um, so, for instance, it has to do with you know how do you do how do you do AI in a fair and unbiased way? Mm. Uh, all of these are uh, opportunities. Just like e-commerce represented a neat opportunity. 20 years ago, I think here are some very neat opportunities, I think, for the community yeah. today. That's very nice to hear. Uh, so, Krishnan, uh, to conclude, uh, I want to know what are your plans for the future? Well, you know, the I'm looking forward to going to Informs. <laughs> <laughs> but in a broad sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was kidding. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I think, you know, I, I, I've been, I feel blessed. I mean, I've had really wonderful opportunities, um, both at Carnegie Mellon, at Informs, and public policy. And I think that combination of things has been very rewarding because the research that we do uh, at Carnegie Mellon, um, the work via the Block Center for Technology and Society at the Nexus of Technology and Policy um, has been very rewarding. And how that then interacts with the public policy work, like the National AI Advisory Council, uh, and then the leadership opportunities that have, that I've, you know that were made possible via Informs, which I'm still actively still uh, engaged with, are all things that um, uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of. And you know, one of the things that has been really good has been the opportunity to mentor. Um, younger scholars uh, and uh, others in our community who are interested in, you know, these different aspects of the kinds of things that I have uh, the capacity to uh, contribute to. Right. So, Krishnan, it was fantastic to talk to you. Uh, I knew this was going to be a very good conversation and I'm glad I that I was right. So thank you so much, uh, Nandri. It was uh, a pleasure. Th thank you, Anand. Great uh, conversation. You led me, gave me the opportunity to reminisce a little bit and look forward a little bit. And uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and get to know you a little better as well. And thank you for the service that you're doing for the community. I think this is pretty remarkable what you're doing. So keep up the good work and thank you very much. I look forward to maybe seeing you in person uh, at some time. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I just hope we can, you know, uh, exchange and, and, you know, have a word in person that will be 
certainly uh, uh, fantastic and great. Uh, so once again, thank you very much, Krishna. And if you're visiting Brazil, don't forget to, to, to write me a line or give me a call. Uh, it will be uh, our pleasure also to, to host you uh, here in João Pessoa. Okay, so uh, see you soon, hopefully. And goodbye. Ciao. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>